Welcome to the Style Free Podcast, where a father and son detail and digress on a wide variety of topics within music, art, family, and culture. Your hosts are Professor Stephen J. Tyson Sr. and Jr., also known as Dad and Papa. In today's episode, we explore the multiple dimensions of Stevie Wonder and our perspectives on his musical relevance and impact across generations. Awesome. It's glad to be back talking with you again, Dad. No, it's great being back with you, Paco, as always. Yes, I remember in one of our previous conversations, you know, we've talked a lot about various artists and various musicians like James Brown and Nat King Cole and Corla Pandit and Haddad Brooks. There's a lot of different folks that we've covered and touched, and we still have a lot of musicians that we still have yet to have conversations about, like Miles Davis, The Beatles, you know, Herbie Hancock, Michael Jackson. But one artist I think that, you know, we really should have a good conversation about uh, is Stevie Wonder. I think that he's really been influential to both me and you, not just as people, but also as artists. I know for myself, really trying to study and, and understand how he uses layers and also plays a variety of different instruments. And whenever I learned about that when I was younger, likely from you teaching me that, it was really blew my mind at not just the skill level it takes to be the musician at different instruments, but -hmm. at the same time, also learning about engineering and recording and that whole process to be able to create a harmony through something that only one person or just a handful of people are creating. I remember in our most recent conversation, we were talking about, you know, how various artists depends on what they're kind of putting into their music and what we're getting out of their music as listeners and how that may affect us or possibly affect a greater portion of society or a listener base. And uh, whenever it comes to Stevie Wonder, I know that he's really been intentional with his message in his music, where especially thinking about in the 90s and into the 2000s and some of his more recent music, where there's a lot more of a social discussion around drugs and a lot of things that are happening in society. I know that he was doing some of that in the 70s with like living just enough for the city um, and things like that. But In my experience, he seemed to be kind of this older generational figure that was really trying to steer the mainstream narrative of music and specifically Black music away from some of the negativity that was definitely perpetuating itself in the mainstream. Um, So like the first album I could think of for myself that really had an effect on me was Conversation Piece in Mm. 1995. Mm. I know that I was first introduced really to Stevie with In a Squared Circle, uh, even the Characters album, but it wasn't until Jungle Fever, that album, but then really Conversation Piece hit that I was 10 years old at the time and it landed at a similar time that Tupac is around, uh, Notorious B.I.G. is on the scene, and then you have this legend coming in with a conversation around peace. It seemed incongruent with where Black music was at the time, and so I always saw him as kind of like one force trying to push against this monolith that was seemingly inevitable um, mm-hmm. and, and already happening specifically um, in hip-hop, but um, more broadly in Black music. And so I know that you've had an extensive experience with Stevie Wonder growing up 
listening to his music. You know, I don't know if you were tuning into him as early as, you know, his debut with Fingertips or anything like that, but um, especially, you know, in your more formative years, you know, growing up, I would hear you listening to old Stevie Wonder records and albums yeah. and, and kind of reminiscing about that too. So uh, from your perspective, do you feel like his message has kind of been consistent in this sort of language of love and peace and trying to push toward something more positive? Um, or do you feel that there has been a balance in his career, in his artistry around creating things that the masses can consume without thought uh, while also then being able to digest a message that is a little more provoking in nature? Well, I, I think that's a, those are good questions. Um, and, and just to go back for a second, I do remember playing a lot of uh, songs like Conversation Piece, P-E-A-C-E. -E. Uh, Conversation Piece was, was also the, the title of the album. And his work by that time was reflective of, you know, what was going on as we were living it. He was talking about gun violence on that album. He was talking about uh, love. He was still had many elements of innovation in his approach to music that I had always appreciated, certainly since the time of music of my mind. Uh, mm. In 1971, he came out with an album that was called Where I'm Coming From. And that was really his first uh, sort of foray into a kind of creative freedom, a break away from the formula approach that he had been taking with Motown. He had always strained against uh, some of the constrictions of the of the Motown system. He had people, he, he collaborated with, with some really wonderful writers, including not only Sarita Wright, who he, he married, um, but also uh, his mother, Lula Mae Hardaway. She was also one of the writers in one of his, uh, some of his music as well. Wow, I never knew that. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That's incredible. Well, I guess one question is, is that in his earlier music, but then also did she have any influence, you know, as his mother, you know, in some of the messaging and the intention behind his songs? That's a good question. And I don't know the exact answer to that, but I would say that there must have been some influence in terms of this sense of the spiritual aspect, you know, the sense of belief in the possible, that the faith that she had in him as an individual who was not born blind, but but through an excessive amount of oxygen, as I understand it, in the incubator, since he was born prematurely, that affected his, um, you know, his eyes, his uh, vision. And she, you know, supported him in spite of this. He was the, I believe he was the maybe third child of six in his family. So he had other siblings and he used to ride on bicycles. <laughs> uh, Even while he was blind? Yeah, there, there are all these stories about, about Stevie doing things that you know sighted people could do and that he he was that had that daring spirit that's he probably why it. there's still all these rumors today of you know him actually faking being blind all these years and <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it's like people come into a room and and he could tell what they had on and they're like what what yeah that's <laughs> I, bizarre I yeah it's it, that that kind of stuff now you know there's a let's accept the possibility that there's some sleight of hand there, you know, that he was some exaggeration. The, yeah. 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 But, but many people have spoken about that. He had the fact that he has certain kind of psychic qualities, you know, abilities and so forth. But, but the main thing I would say, just to go back to your, your question, I would say one of the consistent things in, in his work is certainly love. 
love is something that consistently finds its way in his work. Mm-hmm. Um, songs like Uptight from, I believe, 1965. Yeah, That's probably where he first came on my radar. I don't remember Fingertips, but Fingertips was huge, you yeah. know, back in 63. And I, I likely heard it, but I just don't recall it. Yeah. But I would say it was around 65 or so. That's when I, I started becoming more aware of Stevie. So you were around the same age as I was. In That's right. Getting um, to your awareness. You were about nine years old and I was around 10 years old. Yeah. Whenever I yeah. became more, I mean, I already knew who he was by the time conversation piece came around, but yeah. that album was like, oh, this is something of my era, but yet it stood out as something different than what was co- more contemporary at the time. That's right. That's right. I, I played Stevie Wonder in camp. While you were like okay. going away to school, like in camp no, as no, a kid? No, in camp, uh, uh, sleepaway camp in Camp Brooklyn, in the, in the Poconos. It was a Y camp. And uh, uh, they had a talent show. And so people could get up there and do whatever they wanted to do. And I, was, I so loved Stevie Wonder's singing. You know, I said, well, this is, this is I'm going to do Stevie. I didn't have shades. Somebody loaned me their shades, you know. And I was... <laughs> Swinging your head around. Yeah, and... <laughs> you know, kind of rocking. And, and, and uh, it was um, for once in my life was the song that I sang. Oh, that's cool. You know, and I, and I faked the harmonica. I couldn't play the harmonica, but man, and you know, I got, got applause <laughs> and everything. You know? So from that point on, I mean, I was really into Stevie mm-hmm. and, and listened to basically everything that he did. Yes to you, yes to me, yesterday. His ballads, the yearning, that yearning in his voice, mm-hmm. that exuberance mm-hmm. in his voice. I mean, whatever the formula was, just his spirit transcended whatever the formula was, whether it was Holland, Doja Holland, or some of the lyrics that were written by other people, even some of his own work. Because sometimes, as I understand it, he would have certain ideas about what he wanted the music to sound like. Yeah. They would basically take, uh, he said, well, I like this, I like that. And they would take his ideas, they'd orchestrate things, and they come back with something that didn't quite sound the way he had it in his mind. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so then now you, you come to the point where Marvin Gaye is chomping at the bits. He's going through a, an emotional crisis. Tammy Terrell, his singing duet partner, you know, had taken ill and she eventually died. Oh, wow. Uh, and she had collapsed on stage uh, oh, when wow. he was uh, performing with her. His brother in Vietnam, Frankie, had come back with stories about the, the, the horrors and the tragedies of Vietnam. And so he wanted to talk about you know, break away from the formula and, and just talking about love. And you get a little bit of the, I think it was Norman Whitfield who wrote, um, heard it through the grapevine. And you hear that tambourine rattle. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that's Jack Ashford or who, who, who might've done that, but you hear that. It sounds like a snake, you know, the <laughs> rattle of a rattlesnake. Yeah. And so this kind of darker tone and tension relationships and so forth. That was just sort of like the beginnings of this opening up and exploring human dynamics and, and emotional pain and things, um, which it existed to some extent, but in more in a kind of pop format. Mm-hmm. And, and Motown was really great at being able to take rhythm and blues, some jazz elements, but certainly pop because they wanted to be the sound of young America. Yeah. So they wanted to appeal to a broad cross section of people. Yeah. Now Marvin you know, wants to go beyond that and talk about war and talk about the environment you know, the pollution, you know, yeah. so you get what's going on, which was 
backlog for a long time. I mean, that, that album wasn't released right away. And the reason I'm bringing up Marvin is because he really created a template that allowed other people like Stevie Wonder to come along and say, yeah, I want to talk about what's going on in the world, in my wow. life, and, and so forth. So to add more dimensions. Yeah. Right? And then meanwhile, Michael Jackson is checking out Stevie. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and he and his brothers were on You Haven't Done Nothing. That's you know, right. In the background, right? Do yeah. Dude, yep. and I love the way that song starts off. And uh, and that's a that's a critique on Richard Nixon, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 Stevie had gotten some kind of citizen's award or something from Richard Nixon a few years earlier. And so he's there with his mother, and you know, they're all proud, and he's getting this uh, you know, this award from Nixon. But at the same time, Nixon is being Nixon. Yeah. And Stevie, you know, is going to say something about that. He's, he's now, since 1971, he's released from his contract from Motown. He's reached 21. And so now he has the rights to his publishing. He wants to get the back pay that was held in trust for him until he became 21. And he said, OK, bet. I'm a free agent. I want to do something different. Yeah. He gets wind of these guys. Well, uh, this engineer by the name of, uh, who's a former bass player from England, by the name of Malcolm Cecil. And he heard about these guys doing an album called Zero Time. And I later on, you know, when I got into, really got heavy into Stevie, and I said, (laughs) I got to get a copy of that album. Yeah. Tonto's Expanding Headband was the name of the group. Now, Tonto was uh, an acronym, basically, for the interfacing of different types of, of synthesizers. Mm-hmm. into one unit where you can, with keyboards, you can play different types of sounds. I mean, just, just from mood to ARP, all kinds of electronic instruments. And so yeah, apparently Tonto stands for the original and new timbrel orchestra. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. So Malcolm Cecil had moved to New York a few years earlier and he's living upstairs and in the studio downstairs, he has this, this machine. And uh, so Stevie, you know, Stevie has started listening to some electronic music, people like Wendy Carlos. Mm-hmm. So he says, I want to meet this guy. I have some music in my head that I want to explore. And so they meet 71. I think it was in spring. And they start experimenting just just there on that day. They start going through different songs and exploring different sounds. And Stevie's like, well, what can this do? And, and what can that do? And And so Malcolm is working with him straight through and it became a marriage made in heaven (laughs) and other people started getting hip. I think Malcolm started working with uh, and and I think Bob Margaleff, who was an engineer and is working with uh, with Malcolm in the development of Tonto. We're working with Richie Havens, but not to the same extent that they really dove into the use of electronics and creating these soundscapes, which is what Stevie started doing. Yeah. And before you know it, other people started getting hip to these guys. And so you get the Isley Brothers, the Isley Brothers, the three plus three album, for example, and some subsequent albums started using Malcolm Cecil. Gil Scott Heron gets hip and starts using uh, Tonto. (laughs) And I think there's a photograph of in one of his albums. I can't remember the, the album right now where Gil is sitting there against the banks of these computerized uh, technology. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. So these guys really, really, really 
are kind of unsung. Mm-hmm. You know, Malcolm Cecil died uh, earlier this year. Well, actually in March, he, he had a friend uh, who's a friend of mine. And uh, it, we had talked about the possibility that I could go down to downstate in New York where Malcolm was living and uh, go there and not just meet him, but but just check out and, kind of, you know, understand more about this. And that would have been incredible. Then he, unfortunately, he died. So, wow. Yeah. So I just think that those guys, and I know I've mentioned them before in a previous uh, uh, episode, yeah, uh, really deserve a lot of credit for working with Stevie in in realizing the vision, the music of his mind. Yeah, and it, and it was the music of my mind that really turned me on to thinking about sound because this is before I got I went away to college and I got exposed to people like Sun Ra. Right, right. Yeah. So in terms of electronic instruments, Stevie was the person who opened up that door. And I started even thinking about my art in a different way. You know, I'd love to do cartoons. Mm-hmm. I'd done, like, you know, some, some abstract things when I would take an art course in this in the synagogue in Yonkers. They had an art program uh, on weekends. And so I would do printmaking. Yeah. You've, you've seen some examples, but... But for the most part, I just love doing cartoons. And, and, uh, and of course, by 1972, when Music of My Mind came out, I was into graffiti, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You know, exploring that whole phenomenon. Yeah. So the idea of abstraction, although I was familiar with it, I knew something about it, I'd go into the Museum of Modern Art, and, but that was not where I was really focused. But Stevie Wonder's music really opened up new possibilities of expression, of self-expression. And so I began yeah. to explore more with elements of abstraction. Certainly by the time I, I was in college. I mean, that just it just ex- expanded from there. Inner Visions comes out. I'm looking at the album covers, all right? Uh, Stevie yeah. Wonder album covers, like Inner Visions. I'm looking at Fulfilling This's first finale. And that really spoke to me as well because it, it, it showed these different levels and different dimensions uh, of consciousness, of life experience. It mm-hmm. showed the, the the situation where he had that accident where the, the logging truck that he was behind came through the windshield and hit him. And he was uh, in a coma for a period of time. And I think it was Eward Abner, one of his associates at Motown that was singing to him and, and, and he started tapping his finger. You could see the finger movement. And so the music was started bringing him out Presumably. And so uh, that's where the song, by the way, in Songs of the Key of Life, there's a song called Contusion. And that and song that, is about that accident. It, it comes from that experience of him having been hit and rendered unconscious. I always wondered why that song was on the album, because it's instrumental. Yes. And it just sounds like chaos. Like, it sounds good. It's an, it's an incredible song. Mm-hmm. And I think it has some of the influence of Chick Corea mm. um, in there, too. When you think about groups like Return to Forever, right? Mm-hmm. Another, not only acoustic, but also Roots in Jazz and Miles Davis and, uh, and also, um, you know, part of the fusion, quote unquote, movement that was taking place. Yeah. You know, the Marvel Vishnu Orchestra with John McLaughlin and, and uh, Tony Williams' Lifetime and Herbie Hancock with the... Mamadishi uh, group or also um, the Headhunters. Right. So then if you think about it, with that jazz element, what does he go into next on that album? 
Da, 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 da. Yep, Sir Duke. Sir Duke, which has uh, a reference, obviously, to Duke Ellington. Yeah. And and some people are talking about Stevie Wonder. And I'm, I'm making the jazz link here. Yeah. Right? Going back, but going forward at the same time. Mm-hmm, right? Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? it got a certain kind of ragtime-ish rhythm to it. Yeah, the whole song, Sir yeah. Duke, is just about that nostalgia of the music of previous eras. It's got uh, the banjo, too, you know, yeah. here in early forms of jazz, right? Is it? Yep. The Basie, Miller, Satchamo, and the, and king, the king of, of all. <laughs> Sir Duke. And with a voice like Ellis singing out, there's no way the band could lose. Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. And then you also have Black Man, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Okay, and and you have some of the lyrics written by uh, Imhotep Gary Bird, who's uh, a former DJ associated with WWRL, coming out of, uh, I believe, uh, well, Buffalo. He's part of the Buffalo Brigade. Yeah. You know, with Jerry Bledsoe and Frankie Crocker. He wrote some of the lyrics on Stevie's album? He collaborated with Stevie on uh, more than one uh, song. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. He's definitely come up in previous episodes and multiple times where we've talked about him held up Gary Bird, but more so about him being a radio figure uh, and less so about him also being a songwriter and collaborator. That's incredible. Yes, yes. And, uh, and of course, uh, you know, he's an incredible wordsmith in his own right. I remember songs, uh, not just The Crown, which is what he did later on, which, is, which was on um, Stevie Wonder's imprint, I think it was called One Direction. Mm-hmm. One Direction. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Stevie's fingerprints on so much music. Yeah. People yeah. He's collaborated with. Tony Bennett. There's a song they did together called For Once in My Life. Right? That song that I sang. Right? Yeah. If you sing, you listen to that song. It's absolutely stunning. I mean, Tony Bennett is just an incredible singer in his own right. 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 Pairing him up with Stevie Wonder. I mean, it was a, you know, kind of a duets thing, like the thing that uh, Frank Sinatra did with some other artists as well. Yeah. And so in this particular pairing, I think that um, they brought the best out of both of them. And uh, there's a little passage in there where where Stevie plays on harmonica. Uh, I left my a passage of I left my heart in, in San Francisco, which was the breakthrough <laughs> hit for Tony Bennett. Oh, I think wow. it came out maybe in 1951 or so. And so you hear you hear Tony Bennett chuckle, you know, when Stevie does that little tiny little passage there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Stevie Wonder uh, performing on stage at, at Sting's 60th birthday uh, concert. Mm-hmm. And he comes out and uh, they do it, you know, song together. And But the harmonica, I think it was Barry Gordy who said that that he liked a lot of the different things that Stevie did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was Ronnie White uh, of the Miracles or one of his rap rel- relatives, you know, who, who learned about this kid there in Detroit, you know, who was born in Saginaw, Michigan. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, he references Saginaw in a song called Saturn, which is on the Songs of the Key of Life album. And you say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it, originally Saturn was supposed to be Saginaw. Right, right. Packing my back bags and going back to Saginaw, like on the train to Georgia or something. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Or going, going back to Gary, Indiana. Like <laughs> right, did. going back to exactly. Yeah, but he changed it to um, to Saturn, and I think I think it. Was, I think that's uh, cooler anyway. Yeah, changing it to Saturn. Yeah, because he's talking about 
metaphorically, yeah. right? It's sort of an Afrofuturist thing, like get on the mothership, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And it's also talking about going back as though, you know, this isn't, this, this planet or this place isn't where we originate either. Ah, which will come up later on in, a, in an album that he did called Stevie Wonder's Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it was based on a, on a book, The Secret Life of Plants. It's a soundtrack that's inspired by the film. Yeah. And in it, he makes reference to Ama and Potolo, the Sirius A and Sirius B binary star system, and references to the names coming from the Dogon in Mali. Oh, wow. And how they have this ceremony where they recreate the orbit of Potolo, uh, one of the stars in that binary star system. And how could they see it when it couldn't be seen by the, the unaided the eye? Yeah. yeah. And so the suggestion that one of their ancestors transported to this planet, and that's where life began from another place in the universe. Yeah, yeah. All yeah, right? the Dogon are, are, they have an incredible history and knowledge of various cosmic activity that they've had for yeah. seemingly eons, and yet they you know, don't have the quote unquote technology to see any of these things with the naked and, eye. And, and, and this is where it gets controversial because there are some that are saying that, you know, there were French, uh, I forget if they were anthropologists or scientists, came down and were interviewing people and were suggesting to them that this seemed to align with discoveries that had already been made scientifically and sort of fused something of their religious or, or ceremony and connected it with the scientific discoveries that had already existed. And so it throws into question whether, in fact, this is the case. And I'm not saying that Stevie necessarily subscribes to it and, and all of that. Right. But what it does is that it opens up a conversation about culture, about history, about how we understand ourselves as human beings and what is our story, what helps to give us a sense of orientation, yeah. you know, as we are spinning and, and, and flying through space, even though it seems very stable, although these days seem less than that. <laughs> but, <laughs> <That's for sure. laughs> but the point is, is that uh, Stevie, like he did with Songs of the Key of Life, is not afraid to explore all the different dimensions of human existence and exploring music from other cultures, whether it's Japanese culture, as he has on Journey Through the Secret Life of Plant, whether it's references to Africa, whether it's using African drums, whether it's exploring Latin music, mm -hmm. as he does with Don't You Worry About a Thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. he's, um, he's explored reggae. Reggae, Boogie on Reggae Woman, and also in the Master Blaster. Master Blaster uh, jamming was what I was right, thinking. Yeah, right. exactly. You know, he and uh, Bob Marley jammed together. Yep. And so, yeah. Unfortunate that they didn't get to collaborate. Yeah, yeah. Well, in terms of collaboration, after Bob Marley died, there was a, another artist, another international artist who was given a platform to sort of fill that space that Bob Marley had occupied at one point. Now, I thought there was some effort to try to make the police, you know, with Sting, because they were doing, you know, songs like Roxanne and other things, you know, show the, the reggae influence, right? But the international artist that came in that really given a platform was King Sonny Ade. Oh, yeah. The king of Juju, or KSA, as they call him. Yeah. And so later on, 
he and Stevie Wonder collaborated on an album that King Sonny Ade, it was on a song called Ashe, Ashe. Wow. And so Stevie plays the harmonica uh, <laughs> on, that, on that song. It's, That's it's cool. Great album, great album. Yeah. So his reach is broad. It's yeah. vast. All, so many genres of music. And then Travis Scott. You know? Right. Yeah. Getting contemporary <laughs> today. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little bit about the Stevie that inspired me that I, I grew up on in part. And to your point around him reaching out to and connecting with artists like Travis Scott and Pharrell and Snoop, kind of getting into a bit of my experience, it kicked off with conversation piece. There was the nostalgia of growing up and hearing you and mom listen to In a Squared Circle and characters and Songs in the Key of Life and Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants. Oh, yeah. In Square Circle. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's yeah. Yeah. That, that album is really dope, uh, especially the song Overjoyed. But oh, man. Beautiful. Yeah. Gorgeous. And, and, and I really appreciated the album, the physical albums, because they were also textured. It didn't have Braille on Stevie Wonder's albums, but the texture of the on the leaves. The leaves was on the Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants, where, where it was kind of embossed. It was outlined, contour lines of, of leaves. Now, the In Square Circle album also was embossed, so the surface was raised slightly. Yeah. And that came out, I believe, around 1985. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and, and so the rocks and the and were, were textured yes, on it and yes, the vinyl yes. album was textured on it. Yeah. So it's so really cool. So think about this. The album that I think where Stevie first had embossed surfaces and it's only, I think, on certain albums where they had Braille on it and it was talking book. And, and the talking book was um, I think it might have been Malcolm Cecil who came up with that title because Stevie would listen to. It's almost like when you talk about books on tape, yeah. how the blind would read a book because it would be read to them essentially through a talking book. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. Then you get to the journey through the secret life of plants. Mm-hmm. And then that has aspects that are embossed. And by the way, they also had plant oils, flowers like orchids and so forth, a chemical that was applied on the inside of the album. So when you opened it up, you got the scent of flowers. That's incredible. Yeah. They, like You can't do that with streaming now. <laughs> and, and so again, this has to do with the tactile yeah. component with, with the touching of the embossed leaves. And now he's trying to reach your senses. Exactly. And then and then you get to in square circle, which was six years later, and you notice that Stevie on the album cover, he's like on another planet. Yes. Yeah. Like he just landed on on being transported by a record disc. I didn't see, um, I'm looking at the album cover now and I definitely see that. I never saw the record disc as almost a UFO or kind of a transport <laughs> before, but I see that now. Yeah. I always wondered what that album cover and the artwork meant, like if it meant anything. His music definitely takes you to another place. Yeah. And, and, and Miles also dug Stevie. And uh, there's a great photograph of them. I think he came to see Stevie perform or did Stevie go to see Miles perform? I think it was the other way around, but they got together. I think it was around 19, early seventies or so. And there he is. Miles is looking and Stevie's there and he's beaming and everything. And the next thing you know, Miles has his bass player. <laughs> Michael Henderson. <laughs> so Miles knew what was up, you know, I mean, yeah. And, and then Nathan Watts, I think, came in afterwards. 
was part of the Wonder Love. And he's been with them ever since. Yeah, know, Nathan Watts is, is somebody who definitely needs to be championed as a bassist. He's incredible. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I mentioned, of course, Black Man, that, that uh, Gary Bird collaborated with Stevie as the lyricist on that song. But there's another song that he also did, too, talking about what was going on in the environment. It's a song mm-hmm. called Village Ghetto Land. Would you like to go with me down my dead end street? Gary Bird wrote those lyrics, too? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. This was the environment. This was the culture. This is what I was I was experiencing with Stevie Wonder. When we hear Stevie's music now, yes, incredible, but you also have to hear his music in the context of the times. Right. 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 right? So you, you understand the cultural context, the musical context. You know, what were most people listening to in 1973, 1974, during the classic period, quote unquote? of Stevie Wonder between 72 and 76, right? What was going on in in the country, you know, between Watergate, Vietnam? I think that, you know, whenever you bring up the point around listening to Stevie in context of what's going on around the world, or at least in the times that his albums and his music is coming out, that's where I think, like, for me, it started to disconnect a bit. What do you mean? it, It feels like Stevie got a bit idealistic and and also maybe a bit stagnant in where the majority of the world is musically versus mm-hmm. where he's kind of coming from. And, and it's not to say that his music is of a low quality or that he's slipping or falling off or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's just that he's coming at it and approaching it from an angle that might not have been as effective. So I think like whenever it comes to like Stevie Wonder and his social commentary, I think that there are songs on Jungle Fever that may have hit more strongly to the listener than some songs on Conversation Piece. Like if we're only going to look at 1990s era Stevie Wonder, Mm -hmm. I mean, one, you also don't have that many albums to really choose from. But then two, there's a difference in the delivery. And you have songs like Tomorrow Robins Will Sing. It's a great song. I love that song. I love hearing the layering and the vocals and the melody and and the Mm -hmm. harmonies and all of the compositional stuff within it. But whenever you think about 1995 and the riots that were happening in the early 90s and 92 and uh, the increase in gun violence that is happening, various different drug epidemics and then the war on drugs, quote unquote, and how that was just decimating black communities mm-hmm. to, to, to listen to a song where someone's essentially telling you, you know, to close your eyes and tomorrow Robins are going to sing. It's almost like turning a blind eye to really what's going on. It's almost like you need instruction rather than avoidance whenever things are getting too bad. He's not making a song about Bill Clinton. He's not making a song about, you know, what's going on in the White House in 1995. He's just saying, well, you know, it ain't no really no big thing because tomorrow Robbins will sing. You know, conversation piece, they have the line of ban the handgun and they repeat that over and over again. But there's a greater charge in the message that I feel whenever he gets to the 90s that is of greater need for what his intentions are in comparison to what he was offering with songs like You Haven't Done Nothing with the Jacksons back in the 70s and his political commentary around different presidencies and and what's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's where I think that 
20 years after that time in the in the 90s reverence of Stevie Wonder and his work and his musicianship from the 60s 70s and 80s that people mostly revere which is mm-hmm. why then he connects with like we were saying earlier Pharrell and Snoop and Travis Scott and 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 also thinking about how a lot of that is really him on his harmonica it's not also him singing and adding a verse to it it's it's still his presence and and his musicality that mm-hmm. is still very relevant today and less so some of the idealism in his lyrics. That's interesting, the, the, the way you put that. But that shows the whole spectrum of Stevie. Because if you talk about Jungle Fever, uh, and, and we can get into lighting up the candles, right. is, is a reference to the, the death of the Samuel L. Jackson character in that particular film. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, but the, what was the name of the song that you just mentioned? Um, the one that you Tomorrow took, Robbins will sing. Tomorrow Robbins will sing off of the conversation piece, right? Yeah. So you have to take that along with everything else that's on that album. Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, so I don't, I, I hear what you're saying. I think if, if you take that song just in and of itself, it's not going to in and of itself necessarily be satisfactory to deal with all the issues of injustice and so forth. Oh, we'll just let the Robins sing, you know, they'll, they'll be out. That sort of thing. Right, right, right. I think it's a, it's, it's a, you know, a mental health balm, B-A-L-M, yeah. you know, for the moment. It says, well, look, there are some things that need to be addressed, but, you know, keep your head up. Yeah. You know? No, I agree. I definitely agree with you on that. It, it, it is that for sure. I, I And it might not have been the best example to kind of pluck from that album, mm. but at least for me, it feels like Jungle Fever has more of an edge to it than Conversation Peace does. Yet the message and the purpose of Conversation Peace feels more important than Jungle Fever. Even though the the content of the film Jungle Fever has importance, it's still a soundtrack and it's still connecting to another piece of art rather than kind of opening your door and looking and sticking your head out and looking at what's going on in society. But are, are you saying that that the music of a particular era is just not as on track? I just feel like it doesn't align as much with the rest of the music that's happening in 1995. It feels like- Of the time, I see what you're saying. Yeah, like it feels like it should have come out a few years before. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, interesting. I know the lead-off song for that was For Your Love. Right, and that was actually the first music video that I ever looked at online, or stream. like the first video I ever saw stream online. Oh, okay. It was a clip okay. of Four Year Love in 1995. It's the first time I ever, you know, used the internet to try to stream a music video. Wow. Yeah, it was from MTV.com. They had a 30-second clip of it. Well, I was so ready for, for that album when it came out because Stevie hadn't had an album since Jungle Fever, which came out about four years earlier. Right. You know, I was always waiting for, like, the next Stevie album. Yeah. And then, and then, and then Natural Wonder, which was a live thing, came out. Now, the thing about conversation piece, you also have to remember that it has, um, I think it's called Take Your Time. It had Ladies Mid Black Mombazo. Oh, yeah. Take the time out to love someone. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's a great album. I'll always love that. album. It'll be probably my second favorite Stevie Wonder album of all time behind Songs in the Key of Life for me. Yeah. And, and, at and the same the way, time, but at the same time, it just doesn't, it came out at a time where it just didn't fit in with everything else that was going on in the bigger picture. Mm, mm. Well, you mean in, in the music 
or in the world? I would say musically. Yeah, musically. In the world, like message-wise, absolutely. It, again, it touches on a lot of social issues that need to be addressed even still to this day. Mm-hmm. But the sound isn't as contemporary as it intends to be mm-hmm. to me. Oh, okay. but I, but I still love love the song. I mean, and and also you had mentioned Robert Margulov before. Shout out to him because he mixed the this album too. Yes, he was involved with. I was just going to mention that as well. So yeah, that's you're absolutely right about that. I think that in terms of that Stevie Wonder sound that I like, you know, the the thing that I, I like in a lot of Stevie's music. Well, as you know, I always love music that that you can clap your hands to, snap your fingers to, right. you know, stomp your feet. It's got that backbeat. You know, mm-hmm. so songs like Edge of Eternity, mm-hmm. uh, Rain Your Love Down. Mm-hmm. You know, those, those are some of the songs that I really like on there in terms of that particular type of beat. Jungle Fever, man, I love um, Sailing. I used to play that a lot. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's not one album that he's ever put out where I've said, I, I, I can't get with this. No, no, this is, this is not. I mean... There are some songs I, I prefer, you know, more than others. But the legacy of Stevie Wonder, as far as I'm concerned, you know, still continues. Now, I've been frustrated by the fact that he hasn't had a record out in the past 16 years. I think he yeah. came out a couple of years ago with two songs. Uh, he's had people, I think Time to Love was the last one that he did. That's his, first, that's his last studio album, yeah. Last studio but album. But you're right, he did create a few singles just a year. It might have even been within the last year or two. It's similar to, I think it's actually an even more stark example of somebody whose message is relevant, yet the music is just outdated. Um, mm. th- I think that conversation piece is more closely aligned to the music that's going on in 1995 than some of the more recent singles and songs that he's put out. I mean, he, he did that song with Rhapsody and Corday and Chica and Busta Rhymes, Can't Put mm. It in the Hands of Fate. Excellent concept. Rhapsody kills it, mm-hmm. but it feels like it's a bunch of pieces trying to fit together. And it's unfortunate. And and it's a conversation that I've tried to have with some folks too around, and and we talked a bit about it in our James Brown conversation where you you want an artist who was so pioneering and so influential for whether it's been one era or multiple eras of time Mm -hmm. that they can kind of pick the torch up again for one more lap and one last lap. And it, Worked a little bit for James whenever he was connecting with full force and just to a certain extent, but then it wasn't, it was very hit or miss. And so with Stevie, it feels like that is the space in which he's now entering where it's just not as consistent as it once was, yet he's the pioneering innovator. And it's almost like the desire to have somebody who was such an innovator continue to lead the pack is also very idealistic because everything cycles and there's always going to be another person to pick up the torch. And so whenever he collaborates with a lot of contemporary people, Mm -hmm. but the sound doesn't lean away from 
his home base, which is firmly rooted in an era that we're no longer in, mm-hmm. then it mm-hmm. doesn't align as much. And I feel like it's because of that foundation that the pieces that get stacked on top of it don't necessarily fit as nicely. Well, do you think that the recording industry or artists kind of caught up with the fact that Stevie Wonder, for a lot of his early records from, let's say, 1972 or so on until songs, that he did largely a lot of the musical instruments, you know, the writing, the music, yeah, you know, all of that, to, you know, composing, playing and singing and the, the lyrics. Yeah. Uh, all of that, that sort of one man band approach, you know, became something that uh, people like uh, Shuggy Otis did. Shuggy Otis comes just before Prince, you know, really hits it around 77. Have you heard of her Shuggy Otis, by the way? I've only heard you mention the name. But I don't know if I can recall any of their songs off the top of my head. So Shuggy Otis is the one who created the song Strawberry Letter 23. Oh, wow. Okay. Right? Which was taken by the Brothers Johnson. Yeah. You know, and then produced by Quincy Jones. Wow. His father, Johnny Otis, was a big music band leader and kind of impresario in the field of music. And so a, a lot of people have slept on this guy. He's, he's, he's really quite a talented individual. He's still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't hear about him as, you know, in terms of him playing all the instruments and creating the music and singing and playing yeah. and all of that. But if you listen to his version of uh, Strawberry Letter 23, then listen to the Brothers Johnson. And you can hear what Quincy does. And also, you can't forget Bruce Swedean. Bruce Svensk, as Quincy nicknamed him because his Norwegian background, Swedean, who created the Accusonic sound system, which is what was used, of course, with Thriller and, you know, all my Jack- Michael Jackson's things. Yeah, there's um, a great documentary. It's available on YouTube uh, where he goes through how he mixes and records artists and and sets them up in the studio and mm. put them on top of risers or will have them set up in certain ways. It's absolutely incredible, incredible video. Wow. So yeah, there's a lot of things to say about you know all of these guys who work together and and have had an influence on the sonic landscape of music as we know it today. Now, who today? do you know of is like a Stevie Wonder, like a Prince, like Suge Otis, all of these one-man type bands, you know, these musicians who could do it all. Is there anybody on the scene today that you're familiar with who does that? Uh, I know you yourself have produced music using keyboards or samples and your vocals and you do the lyrics. So in a sense, you have some familiarity or an understanding about, about this process. Can, can you think of other people who are on the scene doing this sort of thing? Uh, yeah, I definitely do it myself uh, for the most part. But as far as other artists, I think that a lot of the artists who are also doing a lot of their music and, and doing it, the majority of it themselves, we don't really know of. I think that the more access that you have, the more attention that you have, there's opportunities for you to still be your own songwriter and your own producer but there's also more opportunity to bring in more collaborators and to bring Mm. in more people into the studio. So I think that for somebody like myself, you know, as I continue to grow, I want to bring in more people who can execute my vision and Mm. my ideas rather than myself having to be the only one that kind of pulls that off. And so you've Mm. seen artists like J. Cole and Logic and even Kanye West, for example, where even though Kanye is 
famously known for his broad collaborations and bringing in eight songwriters and 12 producers, even if they're going to add one little hi-hat, they're going to get credited on it and all that other stuff. But they're executing his vision at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And so as far as folks who are comparable to Stevie Wonder, Mm -hmm. I think that the best example I can think of as far as my most immediate reaction Mm -hmm. would likely be Pharrell Williams Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of how he composes music, Mm -hmm. how he lays down his song structures, how he builds and develops harmonies, and uh, how he also with his own artistry and his own vocal diversity, he can you know go from singing to rapping in various flows and in various tones almost effortlessly. Mm-hmm. And so I think that a lot of what Pharrell could be offering as a solo artist, he chooses to then give out to other people mm-hmm. uh, and, and then allowing other collaborators and other people to have their influence and input onto mm-hmm. his ideas and his music. Um, so, yeah. So as far as a Stevie Wonder like person uh, that I could think of today, who's also a multi-instrumentalist uh, and very From a musical about, point of view. Yeah, yeah. And very knowledgeable about music theory. Uh, mm-hmm. Pharrell Williams would probably be my first pick. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the other dimension that Stevie brings, of course, is his social activism. Mm hmm. Mm hmm which Pharrell is also very connected with, too. Connected with. Now, you know, Stevie, of course, is instrumental in helping the Martin Luther King Day come about. Right, with Happy Birthday. Yes, yes, which is on his 1980 album, Hotter Than July. Yep, yep. And which includes images of marches and, of course, uh, unrest. And he speaks to that. On that particular album, he has a song called Cash In Your Face. Mm. might have the cash, but you can't cash in your face. Mm-hmm. You don't want mm-hmm. you living here. Mm-hmm. You know? so, and again, he's, he's making these same efforts today. Songs like Can't Put It In The Hands Of Fate. I mean, the album cover itself is folks with their fists up protesting. Yes. And the, the effort is there. It's just for, for maybe for some reason or for a variety of reasons, it's mm. just not aligning as poignantly as it did in the 80s and the 70s with some of these same messages and intentions. What is it, what in your opinion is missing? Where's the disconnect? It feels for me as though the collaboration didn't happen organically. It's as almost there was this idea and this musical structure Mm -hmm. and then this intention of bringing in more relevant artists to connect with this purpose in this project there's so much going on feels forced a hundred percent and so that's i think what what can also be some of the other side of the coin whenever it comes to our innovators and our legends mm. whenever they're still trying to remain contemporary like you have a tony bennett that is going to do a duets album with lady gaga mm-hmm. so Tony Bennett's staying in Tony Bennett's lane, but it's getting a new audience because Lady Gaga is now singing with him. Right. Stevie Wonder doesn't feel as intentional as some other artists who have kind of made their way into this current generation, even though they're from 20, 30, 40, 50 years prior. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you know, whether this is a decision he's making or whether somebody is thinking that, you know, this is the way to go to get him relevant. 
everybody in the industry respects Stevie Wonder and his legacy. Oh, of course. You know, I mean, hands down. Everyone outside of the industry, too. I mean, I don't know. If, I don't know of any one person that is like, nah, Stevie Wonder's trash. Like, I've never <laughs> you'll never hear that. You will never right. hear that. Right, 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 right. So uh, another example is the Isley Brothers, mm. where they did that song Friends and Family and just put that out this year. And it's the Isley Brothers staying in their lane. And it's a bop. People put it on at family reunions, barbecues. It sounds like it could be from 1981 or 2021. R. Kelly could have produced it. Thank God he didn't. You know, there's a lot of... Well, no, but it's got his sound. I mean, It has the sound. That's why I said it's got the sound. And you know, yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's got the sound. We just don't need anything getting R. Kelly any more money or attention at all. So, but yeah, I mean, it, it, so, so the Isley Brothers with friends and family is a great example of the lane that Stevie could kind of be putting himself in where it's like, let me just stay true to my lane and not try to force feed every other aspect of what's contemporary mm. into my lane. He doesn't have to prove anything. Nah, he doesn't at all. And he has the, he has the wherewithal to just say what he has to say in Stevie style. Look, one of the things that I always loved about some of the early Stevie, particularly on fulfilling this is first finale, I mean, there's a lot of things and I could talk forever about him and his music, but the way that he would layer sounds, the way he would stack his vocals, but Stevie would have it on different sides of the speaker, have them like different voices interacting with each other. One example of that, a really good example of that, and a song that I really, really love is the song they say that heaven is 10 zillion light years away. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you play that song, you'll hear what I'm talking about. But that's my point. That kind of call and response and mm -hmm. the different vocal textures mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that he brings with each of those different characters on different sides of the speakers. Yeah. You know, so there's a dialogue going on yeah. with at least three people. And then he brings in the chorus, which is like, mm -hmm. you know, the choir, the church choir. See, even yeah. that type of innovation doesn't exist on the newer stuff. I mean, like, and I say the newer stuff, I'm I'm now talking like after conversation piece, because it was definitely there for conversation piece yeah. and even elements of a time to love, which right. was even in itself, like you said, 16 years ago that that album came out. If he had put out four or five albums between now and whenever his most recent one was back in 2005, mm. Then he's also getting feedback and hearing from the rest of the world of, oh, try this or, oh, that was dope and keep doing that or making a retro sound. What about Bruno Mars and Anderson Pac are doing Leave the Door Open? Yeah, 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 yeah. Connect with Bruno. Like <laughs> the, the, yeah, the, yeah, there's yeah. opportunity for there to still be innovation while staying true to oneself that Unfortunately, I, I don't hear as much with Stevie Wonder for as massive of an innovator as he was. Now, that could also be tiring. <laughs> like, yeah, like, I'm not right. trying to innovate anymore. You've changed music. You exactly, know. exactly. It's like, like, <laughs> like, what's the matter with you? you yeah, know? it's fine. It, <laughs> I'm not knocking him at all. I'm not trying to blame him for where he's at, but there's definitely a lot to be desired whenever it comes to somebody who has as much genius as he has. Well, I know that he's, my understanding is that he's got a lot of music in the can. I'm sure. We're just not hearing it. But when, but why, why not take it out 
you know, I don't want this to turn into a Stevie Wonder gripe fest. <laughs> right, yeah. We We're started with all this episode. love. <laughs> Talk about our reverence of Stevie, and by the end of it, it's like, damn, man, Stevie, come on, where you at? <laughs> uh, but, but, but the fact of the matter is, is that he does have a lot of innovative things, and you're saying, well, man, if he can take, like, you remember the journey through the secret life of plants? Mm-hmm. That he would have samples of of crickets and and and, and sounds of nature. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know, or, or these recreations of these natural sounds. Right, like tree. Or yeah, I think one yeah. Or or like even on the album characters mm-hmm. when he had with every beat of my heart, and he had his heartbeat. That's right. He had his heartbeat, mm-hmm. and, and he like mm-hmm. man. So that kind of thinking, that that kind of extension. You could do that now. Yeah, with all the technology, like you said, and he doesn't even need to put lyrics to it. He could do his own rendition of the planets or his own soundscape for whatever he chooses to do. Because it's not like his intellect isn't still there. Even if the lyrics might not land as poignantly, he still has so much that he can offer and compose. These are all the also the ambitions of us as a fan. Right, right. Him too. And also... Like you said, you know, he's done so much. You know, we see this potential. We say, well, why don't you do this? And why don't you do that? But we also can't ignore the pressures of, you know, a, a commercial environment. Yep. I mean, he grew up as a kid, you know, signed at 11 years old. And then he's, you know, doesn't have any hits or anything until fingertips two years later. Mm-hmm. You know, and then there's a little, kind of a dry spot. And then he gets into uptight and all this. But the point is, is that, He's known the importance of, the, of of satisfying the public on one hand, yeah. you know, but also responding to his creative muse, you mm-hmm. know, on the other. Similar to Michael Jackson. To Michael Jackson. That's right. And some people, you know, need certain parameters. They need certain structures in order for them to really take off, mm-hmm. uh, to, to respond against Mm-hmm. And others thrive in a, an environment where they're unfettered, where they can just do what they want. Now, sometimes some artists, they're in an environment where they can do anything they want. And it's kind of hit or miss. I mean, it's no, you know, not all the songs are great. But that's that's in a way that's kind of part of the creative process. But I'm saying is that their lab is open. So yeah. you get to hear like everything pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. So so. You know, on one hand, you can criticize, but on another hand, you say, well, that's just it's just the way some people flow, the way they they operate. And so you take it all. You take it all in stride. But this this space of 16 years, you know, I don't know that it's a creative block or whether it's a, a change of life. But somebody who was so you know that music is still in him. Right? Oh, for sure. But I and I wonder if with the commercial side of it in mind, whether he feels the pressure that whatever he comes out with now after 16 years, I mean, it can't be something where people are like, ah, uh, wow, man, no, this is not happening. And yeah. that's the thing, but that, that's ultimately what it comes down to. In 16 years, we have no mm-hmm. idea what's been experimented with, what's not, and, that, and you know, and that might be all right too. You know, it's whatever's best for him at the end of the day, because I mean, he's, he's, he's at this point in his career, life, he's, right? yeah, he's, been, he's doing victory laps. He's been doing yeah, victory yeah. laps for the last two decades. Yeah. <laughs> and now he's just probably just sick of waving the flag, running around, being like, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hey, y'all, y'all take the Right. Yeah. 
So exactly. it brings us, you know, around again, finally to, you know, who is carrying on that spirit and that, that legacy that, that yeah. involves social justice, that involves, you know, love and romance, that involves things related to the global experience. You know, who is coming out? I know people talk about cash money and they talk about they got the whips and this and that and so forth, but who, who's talking on a bigger level? As Stevie said once, you know, it's not just enough to talk about what's happening now. But, but also be able to visualize what the future could be, you know, what the possibilities could be. Yeah. You know, in terms of uplift and empowerment and social justice, environmental justice. As Wayne Shorter, paraphrase Wayne Shorter, play what you want the world to be. Yeah. Yeah. What's your vision? What, where do you want to go? And I think that's where the mothership element, the sweet chariot, I mean, you can talk about that in a number of different ways, but the point is, whether it's Parliament Funkadelic, whether it's in terms of the, 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 the church, take us to another place. Music can take us beyond the, the constrictions of our time, of our environment, to imagine through mm-hmm. the creative process a better situation. Because you have to live that vision. Yeah. You have to have that vision. Without a vision, a nation perishes, as uh, Abraham Lincoln once said. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so true. Mm-hmm. So he's one of the people, even though he was largely born without sight, he was able to still maintain the vision right. of the possible. And he even had a song on his album, Inner Visions, called Visions. Mm-hmm. I am not one who makes believes. I know that trees are green. They only turn to brown when autumn comes around. I know just what I say. Today's not yesterday, and all things have an ending. But what I'd like to know is, could there be a place? I forget the exact lyrics now. That exists so beautiful. That exists so beautiful. Or do we have to take our wings and fly away to the visions in our mind? Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, and the melody is beautiful. The guitar playing is beautiful. It's an incredible and- song. Yeah, it really is. And so I think that that is the Stevie Wonder. These are the dimensions, the multiple dimensions of an artist who not only sings songs in the key of life, but allows us to see even beyond the temporal and reach out for something more eternal. 